On this episode, I'm in the room with Eric Bargerhoff discussing his new book, The Most Misused Stories in the Bible. Welcome to In the Room, episode number 58. My name is Ryan Hughley, and I'm the senior pastor at Harvest Bible Chapel in Hickory, North Carolina. In the Room is your opportunity to listen into my conversations with pastors and authors and artists about how they do and what they do. And uh, this week, I'm in the room with Dr. Eric Bargerhoff, and we're talking about uh, his great new book, The Most Misused Stories in the Bible, Surprising Ways Popular Bible Stories Are, Bible stories are Misunderstood. Uh, it's a great book. Really enjoyed reading it. Something... That's a subject that is important to me, especially as a Bible teacher. Uh, But one of my favorite things about In the Room uh, is that I get to read so many new books that come out. And uh, if you're new to the podcast, I'm also here with my good friend, Scott Holthouse. Here in the room. I'm actually in the room. You're literally in the room. I just realized I'm always in the room. You are always in the room. These guests are in the room once. Yeah. I get the privilege of always being in the room. You live in the room. I live in the room. I am the room. You are the room. Yeah. So um, I read a bunch of new books. You do. And uh, are you reading anything you right read. now? You read. I just did air quotes. Yeah. Okay. Well, that was that was mean. <laughs> I don't know why I had to air quote it. Like, I can't read. No, you do. I've always been amazed at your ability to understand. You like, I feel like you get a book and a few days later, you're like, yeah, I read that. And then I, I feel I like- I do skimming. Then, I do a lot of But sometimes I'll like, sometimes- I'll throw out a little like, oh, yeah, what was it about? Mm-hmm. And then you can summarize it. Yeah. Like, oh, I, really... I have the spiritual gift of summarization. You do. You really that do. That is uh, my saving grace. The force is so strong. So what's something that you appreciate the Star Wars reference? Thank you. I'm trying. Uh, <laughs> try harder because it's pretty pathetic, quite <laughs> honestly. Uh, so what's something you're reading right now? Yeah. You're reading I... like something about like the cardiogram or something? <laughs> <laughs> the labyrinth? No. No. I will. Uh, I'm actually reading a book uh, called Multipliers. I'm reading. Oh, multi- you are? I'm reading multiple books okay. right now. Oh, look at me! I'm kind of a reader, <laughs> if you didn't know. <laughs> Multipliers. Remind me. I know. I, I did. I, I. I think I didn't get too Is far into that book. Is this one of those where you air quotes for our listeners read? read it? Yes, I did. <laughs> no. I can't even summarize this. What's that one about? It's about yeah. people who are like super effective at stuff. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. That's that is pretty, pretty much what yeah, it's about. No, yeah. It's 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 premises like the best leaders in the world mm-hmm. make other people better. That's right. Uh, that's a good so, summary. Well done. Thank you. Big idea of the book. Yes. And so uh, it's really good. I'm about three quarters of the way through, and uh, it gives a lot of great um, examples of leaders who have done that really well, mm-hmm. and then leaders who have done that really poorly. And uh, who are some yeah. people that have done it poorly out of? I'm enjoying it. What's that? Who are some people that have done it poorly out of? Do you know? Out of curiosity, uh, she changes like names and. Oh really? Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's like okay. it's like real world examples, but okay. it's like. You so know. it's more like they pull principles from people's lives. Yeah, she breaks down all of these. Um, here's what a multiplier does, and mm-hmm. then here's what a diminisher does. Oh okay. Uh, and so yeah, great book. And what's would, the other one? Recommended. These there's another one. That I'm reading? Yeah, I want to talk yes, about it. What the is Road it? Back to You, so it's called. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I just and what's started that? That's Why did I say... I thought you said it's, it's about, about the... It's about uh, the Enneagram, is what it's called. Which is like a like it, an ancient personality thing? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So what are you, like a knight or a monk or what? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, I'm a beaver and a... Isn't there one where you get like animal names I or think, something? I think that like the Asian calendar is based around like... This is purely based on like my trips to Chinese restaurants... <laughs> and how they have that placemat. Your, your, your trips to Green Garden. Exactly. In Palat- or Lake Zurich, Illinois. That's right. So they have like, uh, yeah, they just have animals for like every day of the month. They do. Something like that. I, I'm sure it's based in some like kind of Buddhist thing. So I'm not yeah. really sure what my 
spirit animal is. But no, it would it would be something ferocious and yeah, and, and probably cool. not. Yeah, it's probably like a stork. Yeah, just like the weakest bird <laughs> or a koala. Yeah, <laughs> I want mine to be a koala. <laughs> Who doesn't want to cuddle up to so, one of those? So this book so, is about. Yeah, it's about. Um, so it's about the Enneagram is is just a classification of like nine different personality types. Okay. And everyone kind of, uh, they say everyone can can essentially fall into one of those. Now there's mm-hmm. a bunch of different ways that that looks, but it's essentially a way to um, to grow and just knowing like, so what makes me tick mm-hmm. and um, what what drives me, what, what are some things also that I need to be aware of and be wise about. And so, yeah, just a chapter in, but... Cool. Enjoying it thus far. Good. You yeah. listen to any good music? Um, Anything new that came out? Uh, we talked about this. We listened to the new Hillsong United mm-hmm. stuff. Wonder? Wonder. Is that the new song? No, no, no. There's, the new one's called Shadow Step. Yeah, there's a couple, but I think it's some of their best stuff. Which I want to go on record as saying it's a great song. Uh, it's That's a weird title. Yeah, it is. I'm still not sure what Shadow it, it seems like a martial arts move. <laughs> <laughs> it totally does. <laughs> yeah, it was a tough fight. It got knocked out with the Shadow Step. It was a tough one. <laughs> It's like the crane technique. If do right, no can defeat. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, but that, I'm listening to, um, um, yeah, I don't know. I'm listening to a bunch of them. I'm listening to a lot of like kids' movie soundtracks. Yeah, a lot of Moana in your life right now. A lot of Moana. Yeah. I may or may not be able to rap the whole back of the song, You're Welcome, sung by none other than Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Two words. Prove it. <laughs> Do not do it. Kid, honestly, I could go on and on. I could explain every natural phenomenon. The tide, the grass, the ground. Ah, that was Maui just messing around. I killed a eel. I buried its guts. Spread a tree. Now we got coconuts. What's the lesson? All right, I'm going to stop. Oh, my goodness. That's what happens when you have a seven, five, and two-year-old, and that's, that's what you listen that's to all That's the time. just good parenting. All right, moving right along. All right, Eric Bargerhoff who is uh, a professor, uh, teaches Bible and theology at uh, Trinity College of Florida. Really enjoyed my conversation with him. Um, His book, uh, The Most Misused Stories of the Bible, is on a really important topic on how we take these uh, famous Bible stories and have a tendency to rip them out of their context, Mm -hmm. and then they become like these moralistic, therapeutic sort of uh, fables. Yeah. And uh, so he, we spent most of our time really talking about the importance of understanding the Bible, particularly these stories in their context, which yeah. is super important for everyone to be able to do, not just pastors and ministry leaders. So come on in the room for my conversation with Eric Bargerhoff. Well, Eric, thanks so much for coming on in the room. Uh, very much appreciate it and very excited about your new book, The Most Misused Stories in the Bible. Uh, I think that we all, especially as pastors and ministry leaders, really want to make sure that we get uh, the text of Scripture right. And so any resource that helps us make sure that we do that, I know is going to be a great gift. But I wanted to start by introducing people to you uh, that may not know you. And so let's just start at the beginning of where you're from originally. I uh, grew up in the rural country of Indiana. Okay, <laughs> and uh, was a was born and raised in the in a small little town called Mexico, Indiana. It was halfway between South Bend and Indianapolis. Okay, and uh, was uh, raised in a family of five. I was the youngest of three children. Okay, Christian and, home. Uh, Christian home. My parents were both believers. My father's now with the Lord. Um, okay. but um, my. My family grew up in a small little country church that sang hymns and um, 
uh, ate lots of good food and just enjoyed good fellowship. I only graduated with 80 people in my high school, so... Yeah, I graduated um, with 17, so I've got you beat on that. <laughs> oh, yes, you do. <laughs> yes, you do. So, mostly grew up in uh, a brethren background, kind okay. of a brethren yeah. Baptist type background, and... Um, so that was my history, and my my mother actually was the one who led me to Christ when I was about eight years old. That's great. Uh, while we were while we were baking chocolate chip cookies, she shared yeah. the gospel with me, and and um, from then on, I I was just discipled through um, the culture, you know, yeah. of of living in a a Christian home and was taught the scriptures in the, in this small little church. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it wasn't until I got to college and seminary that I truly caught fire, mm-hmm. uh, or at least to college. When I first got to college, I was seeking God's will for my life. And, um, that's when I sensed the call to go into the ministry at that point. Yeah. So what led you, so you, where did you go to do your undergrad at? I did my undergrad at a small college in Ohio called Ashland university. And, that's, and is that uh, a Christian university? It's not. It okay. wasn't a Christian college, although it has some um, church affiliation, like a lot of Midwestern yeah. uh, colleges do. It has a church affiliation, even though it's not necessarily a, a Christian college per se. However, they did have a graduate school that was uh, several blocks away that was an evangelical seminary, and that's oh, okay. where I ended up going to seminary after I felt the call to ministry from in college. How did that call happen for you? What was your experience well, of kind of coming under that burden that that's the direction that you needed to head? Well, that was um, me simply just praying and searching the scriptures and um, asking God to simply reveal his hand to me. And it was over a course of period of time that there were several um, godly Christian leaders that were there on that campus, uh, a Bible professor, a seminary professor, a director of religious life, all independent of one another, pulled me aside and said, Eric, we really feel like You've got particular skills and gifts and temperament for for a, a life of pastoral or teaching ministry. We think you should consider that. That's great. And um, so, obviously, I felt like God was using the wise counsel of godly people to speak truth into my life. Uh-huh. And, and, and I sensed that that was right, yeah. you know, that that was the right thing for me, and I desired to do that, although I was uh, a little bit afraid of what that would entail, not yeah. knowing what what life as a pastor or life as a professor would be like. I, I kind of stepped out in faith, but I knew it was the right decision. Mm-hmm. And uh, over and over again, the Lord seemed to confirm that through my own conviction and through the Christian community's affirmation. That's great. So what was your first step post-seminary and uh, going kind of through your formal education? Well, after seminary, I, I kind of looked around for a church within the denomination that I was raised in and ordained in, but there wasn't a church available at the time, so I I quickly went to a small Christian college in Southern Illinois named Greenville College. Yep. And worked there as a, in residence life and as an assistant men's basketball coach. Okay. So, so I did that for a couple of years until there was a church that opened up that seemed to be a good fit. Yep. And I went and pastored that church in rural Illinois. And uh, was there for a couple of years until the Lord moved me into my doctoral degree at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, okay. where I went and studied under uh, Wayne Grudem there yeah. when he was still there at Trinity. Little known and, fact uh, about Greenville College, though, before you move on, is that yeah. some people might know that Jars of Clay went to Greenville, and that's where they well, recorded their first, uh, I think, EP or album, correct? 
yes, it was Jars of Clay. And actually, I was uh, the resident director in the dorm where all those guys were housed. <laughs> oh, good. So you can probably tell us all kinds of stories that those guys don't well, want to be public. Well, they were there a little bit before I was, okay. so, but at least I had the privilege of being able to be there. And, of course, the, the college was very excited and boastful about how oh, these sure. uh, young men had a great ministry impact. Yeah. That's great. So then you went up to Trinity and uh, did work there, and Grudem was still there when you were there. Was he a big influence on you? He was, and uh, he was the one that drew me there. I was actually accepted to go to Southern Seminary and Trinity Evangelical for my PhD, and I chose to go to Trinity because of Wayne Grudem. I yep. met with him. He he has such a uh, a pastor's heart. That's right, he uh, does. As a theologian, and I remember just talking with him during that first initial visit, and he sat down and he just said, "Can I pray for you?" And he prayed over me, and just hearing the the depth. And the, the wisdom and the, the heart of him, I said to myself, even in the context of that prayer, this is, who I, this is where I want to be, mm-hmm. and, and this is who I want to learn from. And interestingly, Dr. Grudem and I have had a great relationship through, since then. He ended up moving, as we all know, down to right. Phoenix Seminary. And so when I was writing my dissertation, I ended up shifting advisors from Grudem to Kevin Van Hooser. Oh, yeah, great guy. Uh, which is a very well-known theologian today. And 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 uh, that was a great privilege, too. And um, so God blessed me with some good quality people that poured themselves into my life. And, yeah. and I just feel like it's my job now to do the same to my students and yeah. to those who those whom I shepherd. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because that made such a profound uh, influence on you. I think as a, I, I planted a church in Chicago and we were just about 15, 20 minutes from Trinity actually. And so we okay. had a number of seminary students that were a part of our church and, and we really saw a pattern that, that, that it was very, very important for, for seminary students and college students, but it seems like seminary in particular to have one foot in the university and one foot f- firmly planted in the local church. Um, and that it seemed to be that they got the most out of even their seminary education by having a place to work out many of the things mm-hmm. that they were learning. Do you see that, agree with that, or disagree with that? I, I've always felt that I needed to have a foot in both the church and the academy. And yeah. I think if you look at the history of the church, you see that uh, people like Calvin and Luther, they were academicians, but they were also pastors. That's right. And, and so that's why I have, uh, I'm a part of a group of, of pastors that meet called the Center for Pastor Theologians. And we oh, meet cool. once a year. We meet once a year up in the Chicago area to, um, to talk about how we can be writing books and writing things to impact the church. That's great. And, and use our academic background to kind of really inform the church and give them the good stuff mm-hmm. instead of just the fluff. Who else, you know, who else would be a part of that? Well, um, our mentor in that group is Doug Sweeney. Uh, Todd Wilson is the uh, is one of the leaders. Gerald Heastand okay. is one of the leaders as well. He worked at Harvest Bible Chapel with yep. uh, James McDonald for a while yep. and uh, published. So he was one of the directors of that. So was Todd Wilson, the pastor at Calvary Memorial Church up in Oak Park. Yeah, And um, so it was the vision of, of some of these men that put together these various fellowships of of pastor theologians or, or pastors who have advanced degrees that desire to do writing for the church and publish books while they're pastoring. Yeah, I love and, that. Uh, and so we meet regularly, and I, and I think that 
you know, we we should always be teaching our pastors that they need to get into the depth of really God's Word and in theology so that we become theologically informed preachers, That's good. you know, and, and that we are teaching the Word of God and all of its richness to our congregation and reduplicating ourselves in that way as we disciple people in our church, our leaders, our deacons, our elders. Yep. We want to be just pouring into them biblically, theologically, so that we don't just follow the latest pragmatic trends yeah. of going here and there by every wind and wave of teaching. Yeah. I'm just out of curiosity, if there's maybe a pastor listening who has not really been doing that, um, specifically maybe pouring the- theology into their elders, their staff, their whatever. What would you tell a guy that's like, well, I for sure want to do that. I've never done that. Where should I start? What would you well, recommend off the top of your head? Good question. I think the first thing that I would do is is check to see whether I'm doing it myself, that's whether good. I'm spending time as a pastor uh, reading the right things, uh, studying in the Word, reading on theological trends, the things that are coming out, so that I'm, I'm, I'm kind of building myself up, because ideally, as a pastor, I want my ministry to come out of the overflow of my own spiritual walk with God. Love that. And, and so, so all, of, all of what I want my pastor, for elders and deacons and, and other brothers in the church um, to to experience when they experience me is my is an overflow of my relationship with the Lord, yep. and so that they can kind of see into my heart and kind of catch fire for that themselves, because you know uh, what you win them with is what you're going to win them to, and 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 I want them to be won over by these great truths about the the kingdom of God and the character of God and who God is. And not just what works, because what mm-hmm. works may you know crop up like uh, like the 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 soil, the parable of the soils, what may come up and then whittle away if it's not grounded deep in the soil. And yeah. So I, I want them, I want the pastors and leaders, and even the students that I teach at the college to see into my soul, yeah. So that they can um, see, hey, I want to be like that. Yeah. I'd love that. So you're a professor now, but you did spend a number of years in vocational ministry within the local church. Is that correct? I did. I, <clears throat> uh, following my doctoral degree, I, I pastored a church in Winnetka, Illinois for a while, and then moved down here to Clearwater, Florida, where I uh, pastored Clearwater Community Church for seven years. And, and also then after that was involved in a, a small church plant in the area where I live now. And um Right now, though, I am simply just uh, teaching full-time at mm-hmm. Trinity College of Florida and writing books on the side. So that's about all I can handle at this yeah. point. Is that, is that affiliated with the Trinity in Deerfield or no? It's not. It's, a, it's an independent um, school, but it does have a, a rich history. In fact, it used to be called the Florida Bible Institute. Oh, okay. And uh, is, is one of the places where Billy Graham was able to get one of his degrees. Oh, wow. So was it a difficult move for you to step out of ministry in the local church vocationally to go full-time uh, into the university, or was it just time for you to do that? It was just time. It was time for me to do that. It wasn't very difficult because of the nature of my pastoral ministry was had a real strong teaching bent to it, and so everything that I did in uh, pastoral ministry was similar in that I'm wanting to equip them with the Word of God and with a good theological foundation, and so yeah. just moving from the church to the classroom 
Um, you know, I I have another fellow pastor who's also a, a professor too, who teases me and says, "Well, you now get to have all the fun without all the responsibility." You That's know? right. Yeah, because you don't have to do all the managing of the staff and all the church budgets and congregational meetings and yeah. visitations and stuff like that, and you just be able to stand up and present the word of God day yeah. after day after day. Um, and I can see where you could say that, but I'll tell you what, Ryan, I really do miss. The, the 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 side of pastoral ministry that involves the personal touch of the hospital visit, you know, the the um, the the personal um, connections that you have over lunches, yeah. the counsel, some of the counseling, all the other parts of pastoral ministry that go into that. I, I resonated a lot with grief ministry. Yeah. Um, I don't have to do that as much, even though I'm still called upon to do weddings and funerals from time to time, and I'm happy to do that. But, but it's nice to have a real focus of just teaching Bible and theology to a captive audience on a regular basis, weekly, and also having the privilege of, on the side, writing books and putting some of what I've learned into words that that can communicate truths to a larger group of people Absolutely. beyond just my congregation or my classroom right. via, via writing and books. So when you think about pastors, you mentioned a minute ago the, the need for a pastor to be reading the right things. What, what would be maybe categorically the areas that you would say that especially, you know, probably preaching, teaching pastors should really be reading it on a regular basis? Well, you know, I like to read the classics, and um, I enjoy diving into some of those old classics that, that are part of the history of the Christian church, some real rich stuff, whether you're talking about John Owen, whether you go back to even Augustine and things like that. I enjoy um, reading through some of those things, but I also really just enjoy some of the um, some of the more recent publications that are coming out, like uh, James Smith that's putting out some things, and and other authors that are really rich in their theological philosophical background. And as I even look through my my uh, bookcases here behind me and look around at the school at the type of books that I'm reading, you know, I, I love reading about theological truths. There's one that just came out. Um, called Church Dogmatics, Reformed Theology for the for the Church Catholic by Michael Allen and Scott Swain. And Scott Swain is now the president of Reformed Theological Seminary. Okay. And uh, he, he and I did our doctoral degrees together. And um, and this is just rich stuff. It's, it's theological reflection about uh, deep truths of the faith, but it's more than just theological reflection only per se. It, it does an excellent job of trying to bring it into church life, yeah. to make it yeah. practical. And this is the kind of stuff that, that I think that we should be writing, uh, writing for reform in the church, writing for revival in the church, but but writing these rich truths and reading these rich truths so that we can reflect on, I mean, like Fred Sanders and his book on the doctrine of the Trinity, yep. just fantastic books like that, that really equip us with a deeper understanding of the nature and character of God, because what's really going to sustain your congregation, Ryan, is not all the funny anecdotes and cute stories that we can tell as sermon illustrations, but teaching our people in the church about the nature and character of God. That's good. Because so when, when cancer comes up, those chicken uh, soup for the soul kind of stories don't sustain. That's right. But what really does sustain is people understanding 
that God is in my pain, and they understand the nature and character of God and who He is, His attributes. And so that's what I'm doing even now on Thursday nights. I'm teaching a Thursday night Bible study, and it's all about the attributes of God. I want people to know their God mm-hmm. so, so that that's the thing that sustains them and carries them and empowers them for their life and ministry. Yeah, I love that. And um, I mean, the Bible is the way that we do that. And so it's really important that we get the text and then the stories right. And so that's what makes your new book so helpful. Uh, again, it's called The Most Misused Stories in the Bible. And so the sad truth is uh, anybody that's taught the Bible, read the Bible, at some point we've all misused or misunderstood the Bible at some point. And I, I wonder yeah. just on a personal level, as you worked through this book or maybe a time in your life that you can think of as a teacher or a preacher, just for this, we're about to go heavy into how, how we all do this and how we can grow and be better in this. And so I wonder, just so uh, you're relatable uh, on this. Um, has there ever been a time that you look back on, you're like, man, I really got that wrong, that story wrong, that text wrong. I'd give anything to go back and to teach that sermon again. Yes, most definitely. And I think just by saying this, Ryan, I think we can all just level the playing field that that all of us, all of us at one time or another have heard a, a verse of the Bible and have said, Oh, I like that. And, 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 and then we take it out of its context without really paying much attention to it and use it practically or pragmatically for what we feel it should be used for in our life. And, mm-hmm. and unfortunately, we're kind of minimizing the, the Holy Spirit that way by not allowing the Holy Spirit to teach us what He really intends for us to learn from this verse by using it in its proper context. Yeah. And, um, and I do share in the book that I wrote before this, Misused Verses in the Bible, about how I really butchered Jeremiah 29, 11. Oh, yeah. Who hasn't? You know, the plan, <laughs> you know, but how I had claimed that for my life verse, and, you know, I thought that God's plan was to prosper me and not to harm me, give me a hope and a future. And, you know, it was it was almost a, I wanted to do a name it and claim it type thing yep. with that. And it totally ignored the fact that that was a promise given to Israelites who were going into 70 years of captivity, and it was for a future generation um, that would come out of captivity, that would experience um, blessing in their life. But but obviously, it has spiritual implications because I believe that we can be spiritually blessed and, sure. and we can spiritually prosper, but we can't claim it for uh, our life to say, hey, I, I deserve a new, a wonderful job, a beautiful wife, a great family, and all of the materialistic blessings that we sometimes interpret the promises of God for right. uh, in the Bible. So that was one experience where I had misused uh, a, a story or, or a verse in my own life, and only later after further study and, and, and deeper commitment to understanding the scriptures in context and using good hermeneutical methods was I able to discern, wow, I, I didn't handle that right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and admittedly, it's even if a pastor finds out later, for example, Ryan, let's take an example of a pastor who misuses a verse from the pulpit or something, and he finds out later that that probably wasn't the best use of that verse. Mm-hmm. I think there's absolutely no shame in a pastor going back and saying, "You know what? I did some further study on something that I said earlier, and I want to I want to clarify something because I think from what I, and I studied this a little bit further, I think a better understanding of this would be this. Yeah, that's uh, great. And, I, and so modeling what I would call humility or hermeneutical humility before your congregation teaches them that uh, you're modeling what it means to be teachable. Yeah. 
I don't think and, that I don't think that every every the, the church expects their pastor to be perfect. Um, and I don't even okay. I, I think that they're more almost even more encouraged by uh, the reality that not not that he always gets it right, but when he gets it wrong, that he's going to handle that appropriately. So I completely agree with that. And, and he he comes across as more real mm-hmm. and, and more approachable, yep. and not so much on a pedestal. Yeah. Of perfection, where uh, oftentimes people will become disillusioned when their pastor um, makes a fall or does a you know does something difficult, because for years and years they've held them up to kind of this perfectionist standard that no human being could ever live to. That's right. I think that the experience that a lot of people are going to have when they read this book is uh, they're going to think, oh my gosh, I've, I've either heard this sermon for sure, or I've preached this sermon, whether it be mm-hmm. something on David and Goliath or Jonah or Zacchaeus or Gideon. And so I just, I, I want to hear you speak a little bit to how, how is it that so many Bible stories have been so misused and why does this continue to happen from your perspective? Well, again, I go back to this, this uh, such an urgent need that pastors sometimes feel to be so uh, focused on what's practical and what ministers to the emotional well-being of their congregation that they sometimes will skip over uh, or not take the necessary time that they need to really look at these stories in their redemptive historical context. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're looking for the soundbite, the nugget, the one-liner that can be tossed out that really is a zinger to someone in the congregation, and and in as much as it's not always a bad thing to have those kinds of of, of really strong one line, rich, deep things to hit people with and impact them, we can't do it at the expense. That's right. Of looking at what the Bible is really teaching, what the Holy Spirit wants us to really learn, because we might think that we would have a little bit of an impact with something that we've come up out of this story, but what we might not realize is that the Holy Spirit may have an even deeper or richer intention Mm -hmm. in this writing that we're not using and applying because we haven't really done the homework to really get in to see what it is that God wants to say to us in this particular story. And so one of those stories is David and Goliath. Mm -hmm. You know, we look at that story and the common misnomer that people I've often used as a one-liner zinger or whatever it is, is, um, well, David and Goliath is a perfect story to teach us that um, we have to overcome our fears by facing the giants in our mm-hmm. life. Right. You know, that's just a popular cliche, you know, that we use in mm-hmm. Christian circles. But when you look at that story and you, you investigate the story, you see that David didn't have any fear when he walked up to those battle lines. In mm-hmm. fact, when he got there, all the Israelites were kind of shaking in their boots like a bunch of scared sheep. Yep. And he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he defies the armies of the living God? Yeah. And, 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 and what that story teaches us is that David didn't have any fear. And so looking at that story, we see that David had developed a history with God because he himself was a, a shepherd boy that was sent by his father up to the front lines to bring food and supplies to the army and to his other older brothers who were in the Israelite army. Mm-hmm. And so so David had had a history already with of seeing God use him to care for his father's sheep because he would have assaults from lions and bears 
And he would have to tackle them and deal with them and, and face them and do battle against them. Yep. And so he had he had developed a history with God who enabled him to accomplish tasks that God had called him to. Mm-hmm. And so he took that history with God into this new situation where everybody else seemed to be fearful. But David knew the history and the character and the nature of his God and that this was an affront to the name of the living God that Goliath and the Philistines were standing up and taunting the Lord's anointed and Saul yeah. and his armies. Yeah. And so so David took that history and he went there and he approached it and he didn't even want Saul's armor, as we remember, yeah. because it wasn't it wasn't going to be a good fit for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was just going to be himself and who he knew God to be. And he stepped right up there and, and slayed the giant. So the story is not about let's face our fears by overcoming the giants, because that story was not about David overcoming fear, but rather David expressing absolute outright confidence in the power and the nature and the reputation of his God, who Mm -hmm. was going to bring victory to him. Hey, sorry for interrupting the conversation, but I wanted to tell you about uh, a project that I've worked hard on over the last year and I'm very excited about. It's my new book, Eight Hours or Less, Writing Faithful Sermons Faster. Uh, Time in our culture is one of our greatest commodities. And one of the biggest time investments for pastors is certainly sermon preparation. Uh, But what if there were a way for you to write better sermons in less time? And that's really my hope and my prayer for my new book, Eight Hours or Less. Uh, It's a step-by-step guide for improving your process and being the best steward of time uh, that God's given you. And so if you have not yet had an opportunity and you've been blessed by the podcast, uh, it would be a huge blessing to me if you would uh, run over to Amazon.com or uh, my website, RyanHughley.com, and pick up your copy of Eight Hours or Less. How does how do you think having a uh, a Christ centered view of the scriptures uh, informs the way that we read some of these stories? You know, you hear people like Keller uh, or others that you know he's he's pretty famous at this point for the like Jesus is the greater everybody. <laughs> if you've ever heard him do that, and he'll go through almost everybody in the Old Testament, and uh, I've even heard him do it with David that Jesus is the greater David because he slayed our you know, the greatest giant of sin in our lives. So what's, what's your take on, I mean, Jesus certainly had a, a perspective that the Old Testament was pointing forward to him, that the Old Testament prophets in various degrees were speaking of him and ultimately what he would do as the Messiah. So what, what do you, what's your take on having a Christ-centered reading, particularly of Old Testament stories? Well, I think the good news is that through the lens of seeing the Old Testament through the cross, we can pick up on how many of those stories and characters were types and anti-types and, yeah. and are, are, are the types of things that were all along meant to, and as Jesus said to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, right. as he opened up these scriptures to them, these, these Old Testament scriptures were all pointing to the central person in all of redemptive history. Yeah. And so I believe both Old Testament and New Testament is designed to put that spotlight. Of course, that's even the role of the Holy Spirit. What? Sure. John 16, 14. Jesus said, he will bring glory to me. Right. So a spirit-filled church is not focused on the spirit. A spirit-filled church is focused on the person of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And so, you know, along those lines, looking at these stories, um, 
and and seeing that they are still all a part of this redemptive historical storyline. Even Jonah, we talk about that in the book. Yeah, we talk about how it prophesied, uh, or at least foreshadowed the whole idea that 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 saving faith would come to people who were not Israelite. You know, yeah. and so. Yeah. So, so at that point, we even see that as a foreshadowing of the greater gospel implications um, in the New Testament. So, so all of these Old Testament stories, um, in one way or another, because we look through the lens of, of a Christocentric focus, as you mentioned, because of that, we can look at these stories and confidently understand that they are serving a greater purpose not just stories in and of themselves, but they also will always have a connective tie to the larger historical redemptive plan of God that is mm-hmm. going to be found and situated in Christ. That's good. Well, what would you say so to the person that's listening and they don't want to make these errors in the way that they're reading the Bible? What would be some practical advice that you would give on how to read the scriptures accurately and appropriately and so that we get to the right place with these stories? Well, you know, there are a lot of uh, good resources out there that help us with this. There are a lot of good study Bibles and, and commentaries that are available for us. But obviously, I think what pastors should be doing is modeling how to interpret the scriptures in context. It's That's one of the good. reasons why I'm, I'm a big fan of I'm a huge fan of verse-by-verse expositional preaching because what you're doing is you're actually teaching people how to study and read the Bible in its context. Yeah. And, and in that way, you whether you do it on Sunday morning or you either do it on Wednesday night or whenever you can model that for your congregation, you're actually going to the, the literary context, the historical context, and either basic hermeneutical principles or or what we call you know science of interpretation yep. of understanding everything in its in its proper context, putting yourself back into the first century, understanding the cost, the customs, the culture, the the relationships between leadership and the, the different types of people that were involved in the in the culture in that setting, and and really just studying all of that, almost if we could just time travel and put ourselves in that moment. Our desire is to understand the author's original intent. That's right. That's right. And once we get the author's original intent, then there are some principles out of that author's intent that we can extract out of there and then look at how that principle applies to my life today That's good. in that sense. And, and that, to me, is, is how we need to be modeling for the people how to interpret Scripture. Yeah. And again, I, it goes back to if, you, if you're taking two years to go through the Gospel of Mark— Yep. Uh, which I did, which I did at, uh, at Clearwater Community Church. You know, you're you're showing them, okay, this is how this story comes next and next. Oh, and then look, we're here in this chapter, and that reverts back to what Jesus said earlier in the gospel. And you see the the theme, the intent of the gospel writer, what he intends to show about Jesus. Because all four of those gospel writers, even though we have the three synoptic gospels, each one of them had their own particular emphasis, like right. Luke. Luke focuses a lot on the underdog, the underprivileged, uh, Jesus's ministry to women, mm-hmm. to to uh, lepers, and uh, those who were sick and poor. That's where we have the parable of of the Good Samaritan in mm-hmm. the Gospel of Luke, because Luke was a doctor, and so he's going to emphasize and show us a lot of that side of Jesus that say perhaps Matthew is not going to show, because Matthew's focused on 
on preaching and teaching to the Jewish people that Jesus is their long-awaited Messiah and showing and proving that from prophecy. So he has a different focus in his his alignment of his gospel. So understanding these gospel narratives, understanding the context of these scriptures will just uh, help us in the richness and the depth of what God is trying to teach us in these stories so that we can really relay those principles to our sheep. So what would be, you know, especially for the non, non-pastor non uh, listening, what would be the maybe the top one or two books that you might recommend that would help specifically learning a good hermeneutical Bible study process? Well, um, one of them is a classic by Howard Hendricks called Living by the Book. Yeah, that's a great um, book. That would be that would be a great text. Um, I know that there's uh, uh, how to read the Bible for all it's worth is another one that's put yep. out there. I think Doug Stewart is a part of that book. Yep, and Fee, um, I believe. I know, that, I know that John MacArthur has another one that's out there like that as well. Okay, but there's some some of these books that are just basic how to understand the Bible, how to interpret it properly. You know, you don't have to go to an academic resource like a like a hermeneutics textbook that all of us pastors had to buy when we were in seminary or in college. Yeah, there are there are other things out there that will teach it, and and this is another reason, Ryan, why I wrote the books that I wrote, the yeah. misused verses and the misused stories in the Bible, is that I want to model good hermeneutical principles, and even at the end of misused stories, this last book that I just published. Um, I kind of go through a list in the conclusion yep. of mistakes to avoid. Yep. You know, when it comes to like ignoring the context, misunderstanding the main point, reading modern day biases into the text, ignoring what the Bible teaches elsewhere, just ignoring plain sense meaning of a text and looking at it more allegorically or yep. reading into it what's not there. So the in these the the goal in all of these books that I have written is to model and teach good interpretive principles. And I yeah. know that there's even some schools that are using this as kind of like a side book for some of their hermeneutics classes. That's great. At Liberty University, they use it. In New Orleans Baptist Seminary, they've used some of this book. It's a misused verses book and hopefully maybe misused stories now as a way to to model for their students how to approach uh, the interpretation and application of the Bible. Well, I definitely believe that you've given us uh, a great gift and resource in this book. And thank you for your, not just what you wrote, but also the model that you provide in, in how to think biblically and how to do the work of good hermeneutics and how to study the Bible accurately. And thanks for this conversation, all your wisdom uh, uh, in everything that you've shared. And I appreciate you taking the time to do this in the midst of having a very busy schedule. That's a great honor. Thank you so much, Ryan. God bless you and your ministry at Harvest. My thanks to Eric Bargerhoff for the conversation. Scotty, what jumped out to you? Yeah, he was, um, he, this is just a brief sentence that he said, but you were kind of talking about ways for uh, pastors to grow and, um, and grow their theology. And, mm-hmm. and he talked about, he said, I always want my ministry to come out of the overflow of my own spiritual walk with God. That's good. And I thought that was really good. Yeah. Um, and I, th- I, th- I think that, I know that I've at times in ministry approached it as like, I need to... I need to fill up the tank mm-hmm. so that I could pour out. Mm-hmm. And, um, and just in that moment, I was really, really felt like, no, I need to, I need to fill up the tank because that's the whole point. Yeah. And, and let whatever happens come out of that. Yeah. But, uh, it's a, just a, it's a, it's a 
change in motivation, but I thought that was really good. Yeah, I think there's a massive difference between filling up the reservoir of your own heart and then filling up a reservoir to be able to teach other people. Big time. And I would bet you that in every case of moral failure amongst ministry leaders, that that starts with the neglect of your own soul. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think that there should be a high level of urgency to listen to that point and have it not just be, I'm, I'm purely trying to get better at this for my sermon on Sunday or to help other people learn it when it stops working on your heart you've really missed the point. And I would say you're in really dangerous territory. Yeah. Yeah. And then along the lines of that, you know, he was talking about understanding these stories in context Mm -hmm. and um, just how impactful it is when you do understand. So here's the original author's audience. Mm -hmm. Here's his intent. uh, Here's what was being said. And then we take that and we can apply it to our lives. Mm -hmm. Um, I just think that there is... uh, there's like a, a just a world to discover. Yeah, I mean, in in and all throughout the Bible. Oh, yeah. in, in I remember the first time stuff. there was a guy named Paul Penley. You remember him? Yeah, yeah. He was at uh, a church that we were at together a long time ago. He was a student at Trinity, a PhD student, I believe. Yeah, he was. And uh, he taught. Remember, he taught a seminar at the church that we were working at. It really was about understanding the Bible and its context. Yeah. And I remember that when he. So I mean, I grew up in the church just like you did. Right. So I've been listening to preaching literally since I was born. And uh, but I remember. I mean, I was probably at this point twenty five mm-hmm. when he taught that seminar. I had never heard anything like that. Yeah. Um. I had was largely. I, I largely was in, grew up in churches that did more topical or thematic teaching, mm-hmm. which I'm not down on, you know, those two modes of preaching. Right, right. I think that it is problematic when that is the sum of your diet sure. from, a, from a preaching standpoint for reasons that I don't really want to get into right now, but I did talk about in my book, Eight Hours or Less. That you can pick up from retailers <laughs> near you. See what I did? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but I do think that there's, there's things to be concerned about there. Mm-hmm. But because of that, I just, I think that one of the great dangers in that is it does not teach people to understand the Bible in its context. They don't see how, like, so I'm teaching through John right now and for like the foreseeable future, it's going to yeah. take forever. Yeah. Um, but I like the fact that when I get to John six fifteen to 21 this weekend, people will be able to understand this is coming directly out of you know, six, one to 14 and is directly connected to what Jesus did in the feeding of the 5,000. And so I think that that's really important when we don't teach that way, people don't learn to read the Bible that way. Yeah. And I, I feel like I, as I started to learn some of this as well, I feel like I started to read the Bible. It felt like for the first time. Yeah. Like before that too, you know, it felt, I remember growing up and there were times where it felt like a textbook to study Mm -hmm. or to memorize or Mm to, um, and, and as I started to learn more, here's what it means in its context. It mm-hmm. felt more like an adventure I was being drawn into, you yeah. know, or, or obviously the greatest story ever told. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think the more that, um, more that preachers preach in that manner and teachers teach like he is, um, you know, the more, uh, people are going to be drawn into the That's reality right. and the, and the magnitude and the wonder of God's word. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Well, I do hope people will pick up uh, Eric's book, The Most Misused Stories in the Bible. I think it'll be, if you're a preacher, it'll be a great service to you uh, with some of these stories that he covers. He covers, let's see, let's look. He has David and Goliath, Gideon and his fleece. Oh man, that's a story people are like, 
they don't get that story. Yeah. Uh, Cain and Abel, Jonah and the big fish, the woman caught in adultery. He goes on and on. 14 different stories. So as a preacher, it's super helpful as an additional resource. Yeah. But even just if you are just a Bible reader, I Mm -hmm. think it'll be super helpful. So pick that up. The most misused stories uh, in the Bible. And as always, we thank you for listening. You can follow us uh, on uh, social media. I'm at, at Ryan Hughley, H-U-G-U-L-E-Y. And I'm at Scott Holthouse, H-O-L-T-H-A-U-S. Haas. Haas. Holt Haas. Yeah. Holthos mm-hmm. is a way to pronounce Phonetically. it. Phonetically. Incorrect That's and right. offensive. That's right. But... You can pronounce it that way. That's right. You can also find more episodes of In the Room at ryanhugley.com. And until next week, we're really thankful that you would listen, and we'll see you then. Mm